Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. So it does two things for me. One is it, is it assists me with experiencing anxiety as information that either something's very important or I might be off track and I need to realign, yep. right, or, or interrogate my meaning structure. Yeah. So from a, it helps me reinterpret anxiety in a way that is a barometer to my, to my authenticity or a compass to my authenticity, yep. which is more helpful than pathologizing it. Yeah. And it also then affords me, I think, the challenge of saying, well, my meaning is visible in my behavior. So how am I behaving? <laughs> and, and I love that challenge. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thanks to our major sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their social media support. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that if you want the complete Humans of Purpose experience, meaning no annoying ads, early access to every episode, full transcripts, a personal behind-the-scenes audio note on every guest and episode, plus a chance to be introduced to any of our guests, all this and more is entirely possible. All you need to do is to become a gold member for the price of a cup of coffee each month. And to do so, just hit the link in our show notes and you can learn more there also. If you want to come on Humans of Purpose to promote your organization, products or services, we're open to just five opportunities per year for this to happen to cover our costs of operation. This is a core part of our social enterprise model that enables us to continue to provide you with great content each and every week, totally free. If you're keen and you've got a values-aligned opportunity for our amazing audience, just check out our range of promotional packages and fill out the new partner inquiry form in our show notes and we'll be in touch quick smart. A quick disclaimer, this episode touches on themes of family violence and associated trauma. If this causes you any discomfort, I recommend stopping here and checking out any of our previous 282 episodes. This week, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Tony Johansson. Tony is a former colleague working at Task Force as Family Violence Program Manager. Task Force is a not-for-profit supporting Victorians in need with a focus on drug and alcohol misuse, youth and family services, education and employment. Tony is also a highly experienced psychotherapist and behaviour change expert. His focus is on assisting people with changing their problematic behaviours and living more authentic and rewarding lives. I really enjoyed this chat with Tony. Just a forewarning that I find Tony completely hilarious and the banter and laughter therein is highly prevalent, along with great insights on the human condition. We talk philosophy and behavioral dynamics too. The banter and laughs in no way ameliorate the deeply challenging and nuanced nature of the conversation, and it's perhaps just the way we we both best cope with tackling such difficult and challenging subjects. A quick caveat that I start this episode trying to bait Tony into contrasting the benefits of psychotherapy over coaching. In this bit, I might be probably overly provocative and critical of coaching, and these thoughts were exclusively intended for the darker side of the life coaching space. I am fortunate to have an amazing career coach and a therapist, so no issues from my perspective here at all. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tony as much as I did. Oh. Tony, great to have you here, mate. How you been? I've been really good, Mike. It's actually really good to see you again. 
<laughs> I was just saying to you that I think the most that I've seen you in recent times is by your wonderful reels on on Facebook and YouTube as well. Oh, actually, I was doing a little bit of YouTube prior to that, and because of the sort of longer format of it, I just don't have the time. And yep. then this real thing seemed a bit more. Um... Also, for you, I feel like you can keep it real within real format really well. <laughs> Too much? Pretty real, man. <laughs> It's nice to keep it real. Because you've always been a direct speaker, which I think is what I like, but also very funny. But I think like the way that you, the punchiness of the reel is a great format for you. And yeah. Messages. And, I lo- and because I'm, I'm a, a Luddite to some degree, uh, particularly in the, in the game of reels and things like that, I, I have to use, or I'm currently using, I think it's the Facebook editing really bit, which means over a minute they can't add captions. And so I thought, I'll find a different platform. And then I thought, no, I won't. That, that self-imposed boundary is great, right? Otherwise, I'd just keep going. I forever. like the, um, the evolution of Tony Johansson's Facebook where it was like, this speech is awesome. <laughs> which For, it is. <laughs> it is. And it still is every time you post it. But then we've got the beach and the experience of being at the beach with the overlaid captions yep. and then you speaking yep. into the camera. is yep. like the cherry on top and it just bloody pops. It works. No, it's good. I, 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 I take the compliment. Wholeheartedly, yeah. well, I'm going to stop it. soon, so just enjoy <laughs> right. it. I'll soak it up. But why did you start doing that? And maybe that's a good segue into kind of um, a bit more about the mix of what you do, and, and yeah. we'll talk about your journey, etc. But what made you sort of take that leap into doing a bit more what I'd call thought leadership in a way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I mean, there's so many different answers to that as far as the genesis of it. So, so I can't, I can't pick a start point. Um, I, I have started doing more private practice, whereas traditionally most of my clinical clinical work's been in the community sector, and I I'm pretty much an outlier in most things, Mike. Which is probably why you and I are having this conversation. You think I'm an outlier? <laughs> Go on. <laughs> um, and and there's something to me that that I just find it's not authentic to me to do sort of straight up advertising when it comes to psychotherapy. I, I just there's something about that that I don't like. And I'm also really mindful of of how someone with a personality such as mine can be conflated with being a coach. Yes. And I am not a coach. I'm a psychotherapist, right? There there is a big difference. And so rather than making ads or anything like that, I decided just to express in condensed form some of the techniques I use for assisting people with regulating their emotions and then using that as a marketing tool rather than actually advertising. Well, it's quite refreshing to see somebody not just talking about self-limiting beliefs and the the bullshit coach banter, (laughs) to be fair. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Thank you. Obviously, that is a thing. But, I mean, I think with the coaching videos, you get the same sort of tropes in and out. And, look, I don't know if you have views on why – it's better to see a psychotherapist than a coach. Obviously, very different purposes. I, I do reasons. indeed have views. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, I certainly do feel as though um, in the coaching space, and particularly the ones that make the videos and do the blogs and stuff yeah. and the, the same sort of posts, and yeah. it's all sort of the same kind of stuff, isn't it, really? It's very samey, and I, I think it's really – it has the potential to be quite patronising in the sense of, of – of the pitch is that it's really easy to do yep. and that follow these three steps and you'll be liberated from your own self-suffering. Correct. And, you know, this is something that humanity's been wrestling with, I think, since abstract thought became a thing. Mm. You know, we're blessed and cursed with this central nervous system that's hyper-reactive to, to threat, and all we do is create more and more threat in our very complicated environment. Yep. And, and to try and simplify that experience, like the challenge of managing that in a contemporary setting like, like, like a developed nation like Australia, 
It's a nightmare. That's yeah. a very difficult thing to do to manage that arousal response. And yeah, the way coaches can simplify it is the whole wake up, stupid. You know, I was like, really, man? Come the the on. thing that I think is quite interesting about what, how coaches lean into is that sort of thing like um, you create your own reality and, yeah. and a lot of the manifestation gospel bullshit totally. as well is yeah, yeah, yeah. really bothers me. I mean, like the whole idea that um, you're not succeeding because you're not thinking enough positive thoughts or yeah. Yeah, you don't have a vision board or yeah. some of this yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and the thing is, right, like, in, in one sense, that's true, mm. but it's a far more complex, nuanced conversation than yep. that, and it's the simplification of the human experience yep, that that's I find it. most disturbing about that coaching. You, you've summed up everything that I have uh, wrong with coaching that I just said is bullshit into far more eloquent, <laughs> nuanced, <laughs> logical reasons why maybe psychotherapy is a better solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's the, the thing for psychotherapy, it's finding, coaching's like, here's how you manage it, and psychotherapy's like, let's find your way of managing it. Yeah. Like yep. I know some tricks and tips, man, and, and, and that's kind of what the reels are, right, is this, these universal human givens as to how we can better manage our experience of consciousness. But it's got to, we've got to find your way of doing it, and yeah. that's going to take some talking. You and, you and I got to figure that out, you know. One thing I liked that I saw recently out of your reels was the one that you said about um, how everyone has this perception that there's like one or two great choices or options. <laughs> <laughs> the shitty options one. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. You're one that's like hashtag all choices are shit. It's yeah. just like find find the least shit choice. The least then, shit choice. And then after that, find the next least shit choice. Totally. And then eventually you might have some okay choices that are not as shit as the previous yeah. set of choices. Yeah. And if you keep doing that, you'll end up in a good place. And and become comfortable with the fact that by the time you end up somewhere down the road, it's still going to feel like the least shit of a shitty choice. Yep. It's only going to be a great choice in in when contrasted against where you were three or four years ago. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think you break down a very flawed assumption, which is that often there's a good choice and a bad choice. Oh. That's just about never the case. Oh, and people think, are just waiting for the right option. Like the, like everything's a binary situation where there's a winner and a loser. It's a zero-sum totally. game. Yeah, yeah. Like I always think my biggest learning of the past few years has always been like any any um, decision-making scenario, there's not two choices. There's often oh. – um, there's often, you know, um, an innumerable number of choices, yeah. but probably about six different options. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the illusion is when someone presents you with a decision that you have a, you know, a yes or a no kind yeah. of choice, like this or that, it's never that. And and I think the smart people and the smart way to navigate those situations is to realise that you're never boxed into two decisions. Yeah. It's but it's up to you to come up with what those third, fourth, and fifth order decisions might be yeah I, I agree and i think like from a psychotherapeutic standpoint it's that it's believing that it is a binary option yeah or choice is in and of itself part of the challenge that we're trying to rectify through psychotherapy right mm. it's, it's it's exactly that yep and and you know more often than not your, your best choice when you're considering that binary is that midpoint of i'm not going to do anything right now i'm, <laughs> I'm just going to contemplate yeah. this you know and then the difference between that was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that. Uh, thought we were going halfsies. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Uh, between procrastination and and choosing to pause and wait is that one is deliberate. Mm. And it's the same way as I've got no problem with indecision. If I say, hey, well, how do you feel about that, Mike? And you go, well, I don't know. 
No, but it, indecision is still a decision, I feel. Exactly. As long as it's considered, right? Exactly. Exactly. So if, you, if you can, it's like that, um, where, where does that come up? It comes up in some context I've referenced a fair bit lately, but there, I feel that there, people don't realize that a choice to delay making a choice yeah. or a choice to not continue with something, like to quit, yeah. is a positive decision. Most definitely. Yeah. Without question. And as soon as you start understanding life in that, in that decision-making matrix, yeah. It, become, it becomes a lot more empowering. And I think that's, again, to contrast psychotherapy against coaching, mm. that's what personal responsibility looks like. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to choose to procrastinate today, like yeah. is, is, a, is a sort of psychotherapeutic paradigm, as opposed to I'm going to be a sheep, not a lion today, <laughs> whatever yeah. kind of framework you yeah. give me, man. Like it's getting out of that binary. And, and the older I get now and the yeah, that's a better. I was going to say the wiser. I'm not going there yet, Mike. I'm going. To, let's just say old. Right? <laughs> You're taking the safe. Uh, I am taking the safe option. Watered down option. Go ahead. Yeah, but but I'm really comfortable too now. In when someone puts a proposal to me, rather than not knowing how to respond, I might say I'm not sure how to respond to that, or I might say something along the lines of, "Can you phrase that in a different way that might help me better understand your request?" Yep. And that that I can actually part of my response rather than a yes or a no can be to simply ask you to elaborate on what your request is. Yeah, see, I feel like that's something you've learned through psychotherapy for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what psychotherapy is, is just yeah. following people down the rabbit hole. And so maybe let's talk a little bit about what it actually is that you do in a psychotherapeutic setting. Yeah. And then I also want to talk a bit more about your work in family violence and, you know, that, yeah, that totally, flows on totally. from some of how we met and the work done together, men's behaviour change, et cetera. Definitely. But um, what, it, what does a normal psychotherapy, and maybe there isn't a normal one, yeah. but what is the role? of the psychotherapist, I guess, in a psychotherapeutic um, session. Yeah. Do you want me to try and really briefly and low in a low resolution articulate the difference between all these people who do therapy, like counselling, psychology, social yeah. work? Like, because you know, it's, it's, yes. they all get conflated and we're all a little bit yeah. different. See, I like what you did there even was. I did exactly what I was talking about. You took a very right? muddled <laughs> question and was like, let me give you a better way to ask or answer that. <laughs> but please. Well, because this is exactly what, this is what psychotherapy yep. is, right? It's it's that people are going to come at you with a low resolution worldview. Wait, are we in session right now? Pretty much. Okay, good. Just checking. So, yeah. And and my, my job is to keep zooming in and see how many pixels there are in that low resolution fundamentally. So, so I'm not telling you what's in that. I'm just asking questions that assist with zooming in, and then you're describing to me the pixels. Are you trying to correlate um, facts and situations with feelings at that time as well? Is that very important for psychotherapy? Not, not, not always. Okay. Not always. But the difference between – so counselling fundamentally – the easiest way to understand counselling, and this is a really low resolution. Yes. People listening who go, I'm a counsellor and I don't no, identify assume as Assume that, that most people cool. listening aren't counsellors, so yeah. Even better. Then you can give me a <laughs> you call can and we can talk about this. <laughs> but counselling, I best traditionally is understood as, as helping people navigate a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. So I started my career as a drug and alcohol counsellor. Yep. It's very explicit. You know, yep. If you're working in family violence, you might be assisting a man with mitigating the amount of violence he uses against women and children. It's, it's very specific what it is. Yeah, and one, one can basically assume that you, your role in that drug and alcohol counselling context would be working with people who have substance abuse or addiction issues. Yep. They may want to get to a certain um, point in, in that road to recovery or uh, live a better life yes. or they might have some goals and you help totally. them get there, right? Yep, we're going from A to B, yep. right? Um, and. If you think of a psychologist, it's less about that and more about uh, – sorry, it's, there's that component to it as well. But you know, psychologists fundamentally are trained as, as researchers and assessors long before they're trained as therapists. Yep. And if a psychologist becomes a therapist, that's a choice. That's not part of the training. Yep. And so that's a conflation too with psychologists. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting as well because I, I studied a bit of psychology recently and it, was, it wasn't it was a pleasant experience. But, that's, but what it 
what was great about it is I have a, a, a lot richer respect for what psychologists do and a better understanding. Yeah. But it's very different to counselling, for example. Yeah. And then counselling would be – psychotherapy is an offshoot of counselling, right, whereby I know we're going to talk about moving you from A to B, like that's the problem you've come in with, but really what we're going to do is interrogate your worldview and how maybe childhood experiences have influenced yeah, that. it's like an osteo. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's more and more ways of, of, incre- of pushing the goalposts yeah. out, right? It's like uh, I've come in, uh, my back sore, no, your hamstring's sore. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> tell me more about my hamstring. My Chinese doctor's the same. When I come, I've got a sore calf and she's rubbing the inside of my finger whilst telling me my liver's the wrong colour. I'm like, that's just fascinating. You've been eating too many purple foods. I could see you when you walked in. Go. Exactly, yeah. It's root vegetables. That's my problem. Yeah. <laughs> So we all do different things, right? Yeah. But the, the, the psychotherapeutic one is whereby, okay, we might move from A to B, Mike, and you might drink less coffee than you did when you started mm. working with me, right? That's mm. our plan. Yeah. But but really it's to interrogate relational patterns, worldview, philosophical assumptions that you yeah. move through. It's, 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 it's like a personality overhaul if, if you're going to commit to the – to the, to the experience. Yep. And it might be sort of trying to understand also like what is driving me to drink the coffee. Without question, yeah. yeah. So there's that psychodynamic old school Freudian thing as well that's always yep. in play whereby your childhood is what, always what going is to be the, relevant. What is the meaning of the coffee to you and that experience of drinking it maybe? Yeah. Something there's, like there's, there's, there's what we understand objectively about coffee. It's your subjective relationship to coffee that I'm interested in, right? Let me throw something at you that I have a view about, and I, I've talked about it a lot. Yep. Um, I do a bit of therapy. My wife and I do a bit of therapy. I think about it like the gym. I yep. think I think it's really weird that in society we have place this big emphasis on um, looking after our bodies because mm-hmm. I think they're visible. Yeah. But when it comes to things like our mental health, our relationships, our well-being, our perception of self, our wisdom, our capacity to grow and improve – we seem to stigmatize investing in that or telling, yeah. talking to others about doing that. Yeah, yeah. Other people sort of feel a, a huge amount of shame or stigma about doing that themselves. Yeah, totally. Um, do you think that, I mean, first of all, what's your take on that? And secondly, my question would be, do you think everyone should more or less have some sort of therapeutic involvement or relationship? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll answer the second one first. Yes, yes yeah. I think everyone should, but it doesn't yeah. need to be formalized. Sure. They're- Reflective practice fundamentally yep. can, can take many forms. Mm. Um, it's it's when you feel that regardless of the reflective practice you're engaged in, you don't feel like the kind of personal growth that, that you're aiming for is happening yep. or that there's still lots of blocks in relationships and in life. So there's something about your reflective process whereby you can't get out of your own way. Right? Yeah. It's, you've got your own hand between yep. you and your face and the and mirror. And you can't maybe identify what it is that's yeah. causing that. Yep. Which, is, which is when therapy is great. Look, I think – if if it wasn't a if it wasn't a financial cost, I'd recommend everyone go into into it just for even between once a week and once a month, just have a space for an hour where you just get to talk. Yeah. And someone follows you down the rabbit hole. Yeah. And at the end of it, you know more about yourself than you did at the start of that conversation. Like that's fantastic. Yep. And and to to then revisit the, the start of your statement question about the the difference or disparity between mental health and physical health. Mm. It's. Therapy in our society currently looks a lot like physical health does before a wedding. (laughs) 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 Or before a trip to Bali, right? So we're just going to go real hard and then we get there, we'll stop. And we'll do whatever it takes to get there, right? Drink shakes, no solids, like whatever kind of soup diet you're on, all this kind of radical stuff. And that's how people tend to approach therapy, Mm. right? They, They wait till it's blown out. They take these extreme measures to hit some sort of end point, whatever that is, or some sort of milestone. And then drop the ball again. Yeah, it's not seen as this ongoing pursuit that really should accompany you from not birth, but as soon as abstract thought takes shape, 
until you've lost your faculties at the end of it. That yeah. that reflective process, whether it's shared with a professional yeah. or whether it's done individually, is is that's the gig. And if you look at people who do life well, it's because they're super curious about not just the human condition, they're curious about the history of the human condition and and where they sit in relation to you know sitting on the shoulders of giants who have had the ability to reflect on their experience. Yeah. I mean, they're the kind of people that you want to sit next to, right? I think, yeah, you certainly can recognise self-reflective people who yeah. put work into understanding themselves and the human condition, but I think that can be separated as well. So somebody can be a student of the hum- human condition and yep. study philosophy and yep. some of the great authors and uh, thinkers, but- yep. And be a fall-down drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and be horribly uh, poorly intuitive or aware yeah. or self-reflective and have no insight into the, the, yeah. the fact that they're a giant asshole, maybe. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, yeah. And, and you can have people who don't obsess over self-reflection, but can, can actually be really kind, yep. right? And, yep. and and have a healthy level of self-esteem yep. in the sense of they don't demonize themselves beyond- Beyond critical reflection, yeah, um, and move through the world with 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 grace. And another layer to all of this is, I think, men in particular, yeah, and the difficulties. My that, bag, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, I mean, and so that's why I think it's so valuable to hear your perspectives on sort of like what it means to be a man today, and yeah. sort of what are the needs of men. I mean, yeah. I think we hear a lot about. I mean, the main things that we hear in society about men these days are how privileged we've been for how for how long a time and yeah. particularly white men have had it really good and yeah. there's certainly a lot of truth to to that but the, um the narrative certainly doesn't pay much attention to like the changing nature of the man's the modern man's identity yeah the the focus that society and the role expects us we're expected to play with yep. it within that new society, yep. but also how do we have a space to artic- articulate our own needs and yeah. sort of find ourselves and be good men? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's like we'd, we'd just reached the point where we'd realised that we needed men to encourage men to talk about how they felt. Yep. We were on the precipice of that being a mainstream concept mm. and there's a lot of social movement behind that. There's yep. a lot of political weight behind it. There was funding behind it. There's activities behind it. I mean, yep. you can almost – we're in the um, sort of the, the the comet, the tail of the comet of Movember and things like this, right? I'm really glad you referenced Movember because that's exactly who I was thinking about as leading a lot of that movement. Yeah. So, so you remember that era, right? Oh yeah. I think I'd characterise it as maybe 2010 to 2016 or 2017. Yeah. 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 And we were putting the foundations in place that that are, that that that, that are required for probably another two generations of that conversation. Yeah. And we've shut the door on that already because we've said we've heard enough from you men. Uh, back in your box. Yeah, the irony there is is quite profound, and there's there's some kind of cynical sickness to it that that we encourage men out of their box before we shut the door on them. And yes, that's a that's a it's just a really unfortunate point in history to to have witnessed that. I think. Well, I think you've seen um, at the same time as a lot of this productive and useful conversation is happening. Yeah. You've seen um, the the rise in the the far left. You've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, Intersectional discourses really emerging as like a totally. key field. Critical study is becoming far and more prevalent, and I think um, the imperative. The, the, maybe it's oh, I don't know if I'd call it the, the plurality or the diversity or the the underrepresented voices movement yep. really taking centre stage, which yeah, yeah. every right to do so. Totally um, has certainly displaced any kind of real interest in in giving men that chance to really um, rebuild that notion of what it means to be a good yeah. man and yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a it's a very difficult space to navigate therapeutically mm. when I'm working with men. I do work with women as well, but my expertise yep. is with men. Yeah, um, and it's a it's an, it's a 
even more difficult space to navigate when I'm working with men who have been sent to me from the courts yep. as respondents to family violence intervention orders. Yes. So that in itself is an incredibly nuanced space to work in. Yeah. And so one of the challenges with your your caveat, your opening caveat to the to the start of this thread being that that as white men we've had it good for a long time and yep. and no one disputes that, right? If yep. you look at quote unquote the data. Mm. But one of the challenges there is we're taking a sociological paradigm, which is to look at groups of people and explain how they move around and how one might be privileged over the other yep. based on these certain markers, mm. right? That's a sociological lens. And then we try and use that sociological lens to explain the psychology of an individual. And even psycholog- even the field of psychology in and of itself will say that, well, I can tell you everything about a, a, a data sample from that population, but I also, I'm also open to the notion that, that, that that may say very little about the individual. Yeah, right? well said. And so this is the problem is that we're taking a, a sociological paradigm and then applying it in, in a psychological manner. So, it, it, yes, it says everything about that group historically or currently, depending on how you want to view the data, but it says very little about Simon, who's walking down the street. And, right? and I think this is almost like the unconscious bias that we've unlocked or unleashed into the world that yeah. we're trying to fight on the other side. Like, yeah, so, yeah. so it really just makes no sense because, you know, we're looking at all these things around how do we reduce unconscious bias uh, towards diverse groups in workplaces. Well, Hold on a second. <laughs> Why are we addressing that? But then we, you know, we're, we're going to treat all people who are male and white like all white men. Yeah, it's it's a it, it's it's strange, right? Because I'm some I get, I get caught somewhere between amused and frustrated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just raise it because I think this reshaping of a man's identity. I'm curious what comes up for you in these behaviour change sessions, particularly yeah. with men that have transgressed and you know, um, being, being part of the court process yeah. and they come to you, what are, what are the sort of some of the common um, cognitive things that you're seeing come up, whether they're errors in thought, errors in action? So what, what look, at, I mean, again, right, it depends who you ask because there's, yep. there's a lot of funding attached to whoever's paradigm can, can reign supreme. Sure. Right? And so currently in the family violence space, um, a gender inequality paradigm, to explain the causality of male family violence against women and children yep. is is the the accepted narrative. Yeah. Right? Now, there's no more or less evidence to support that than there is that it's a mental health issue or that it's an AOD issue or anything along those lines. It just depends how, how you want to look at the data and how you want to look at the evidence. Yeah. So, again, this is my challenge. So I'm not saying that male family violence isn't caused by gender inequality. But as soon as you use a word like causation – you're stepping into a scientific realm. Yeah, yeah. And so that statement in and of itself is is never provable Yeah, because and, of the variables at play. And perhaps not that helpful anyway. Well, I sat in this meeting the other day, right, with sort of the usual players who, who I won't name here, yep. but, you know, important people in the family violence and drug and alcohol sector and, and in the academic, uh, academic sphere, and we're having a conversation about, and it's a targeted conversation about male family violence and substance use and that intersection, and, yep. and that's my expertise. If I'm in the community space, that's my expertise, right? Yep. And these conversations are always centered on two things and they're centered on terms of reference, which, which as someone who grew up in small business, right, I just find hysterical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a, what a bonkers place to start. Well, you, for starters, you look around the table and you think, well, every single person here plus on costs is about a hundred bucks an hour, right? Mm. And there's 20 of us. 
and we're going to spend the first two hours of taxpayers' money talking about terms of reference. Yeah. So as someone with a small business background, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for my existential underpinnings because I, I can appreciate the absurdity of that. Yep. And once we get through terms of reference, then there's a, a, a causality conversation that it, it is had tokenistically because the assumption is that, that we're all going to agree that it's um, gender inequality. Now let's move on. Now I'm not disputing that it isn't, right? But the causality or causal conversation is Correlation, well. causation. Well, it's correlation, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right? It's a yeah. correlation. It can't be a causation because you're using scientific language now yeah. and we can't prove that and yeah. I can't disprove it. Yeah. So let's call it a very high correlation. Yeah. There's other very high correlations too. Why wouldn't you just do that? Wouldn't be that be the pragmatic way to move forward? This is my challenge though, is that yeah. it, 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 you enter into a space where pragmatism, logic, and science aren't in play and, and evidence doesn't – evidence is oh, weighted differently so depending on the we're narrative. we're in the upside-down bureaucracy world. Yeah, we're, we're firmly placed in bureaucracy, right? <laughs> and again, I'm a pragmatic person as you are, so it's a diff, diff, difficult space to swim in. Yeah. Anyway, so it's the first two hours of – no, I'm being facetious, right? The first hour is like t- terms of reference. Yeah. Second hour is about cause. And and it kept going around, and and I just said, look, once it got to my turn to say my piece, I just said I decided a while ago in this space to not talk about the cause of male family violence because we go down rabbit holes, and everyone's trying to have have their lens held as primacy because that's where the funding goes. I'm in this game, right? I'm in the male family violence caper to reduce the incident. So the incidences of male family violence against women and children. Yeah. So I can tell you all the thing, all the interventions, mm. the evidence-based interventions that reduce the prevalence. I don't give a shit what causes them. Yeah. I'm more interested in nice. just reducing the phenomena. You're in the game of treatment, not totally, scientific man. study. Of I'm not in this pissing competition of yep. my hypothesis beats yours. Yep. So on that note, I mean, what works? What works? Well, here we go. <laughs> Let's get deep. What, what roll the works? Up. What, what, what's interesting? I actually will roll them up, Mike. Thank you. I actually put those guns away. <laughs> Not permitted to carry firearms in the co work space. Hey, babe, what you got there? This is a check from Carvana. I just sold my car to them. I went online and Carvana gave me an offer right away. Then they just picked up the car and gave me this. Well, that's a big check. Well, obviously, you could put this towards your next car, or we could finally get that jacuzzi, or I could start taking tuba lessons, or I could quit my job and write my memoir. Or I can put it towards my next car with Carvana. Sorry, your check, not mine. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. <laughs> it's what what works is... Because I came at it from an AOD standpoint, right? So there's these there's these long-standing behavioural interventions that we know work, and there's evidence to support them. And so then I I start working with male family violence, and I say, well, isn't this just another behaviour that we want to rectify? Mm-hmm. Now the position generally in the family violence sector is, yes, it's a behaviour we want to rectify, but we're not as concerned about the behaviour as we are about the beliefs. In the sense that we believe that if we change his belief about the world and his position in it mm-hmm. and about the role of women and children being sub- his subjects to to rule over, then the behaviour will change. And so I don't necessarily argue with that paradigm, but I do flag that if an AOD client walks in, right, and sits in front of me, we engage in harm minimisation strategies that we know are going to reduce risks to that person sitting in front of me and therefore reduce risks to the community yep. as a subsequence or a symptom of that, right? Yeah. I don't sit down on day one and go, you know what's wrong with you, mate? It's your beliefs. <laughs> like, can you imagine if that's your entry point to a behaviour change? 
conversation. This, this is look. Presumably, this comes from a paradigm around um, beliefs inform attitudes, yeah. inform behaviour. But the data doesn't support that. Yeah. Okay. So that would be okay if the data supported that. Yeah. But the the data doesn't say that in this space or more generally. More generally. Okay. So the data in the in the family violence space is it's probably not worth citing it too much yep. because it's so inconclusive and you can't you can't compare a men's behavior change program to a men's behavior change program again right there's yep. it's, it, there's there's a flaw in the science of it so you're not going to work with a men's behavior change group around what their underlying um, toxic beliefs might be I, I will but that's not day one for me right okay so what what I'm highly attuned to is the attrition rate in men's behavior change programs yes. right so I think to myself well how is it that that people commit to things? when their entry point is extrinsic motivation and the, the, the data says that extrinsic motivation is okay if it's money and that money is one of the few things that doesn't seem to um, have diminishing returns over time. I mean, it does in the sense that I've got to pay you more, but the to, stimulus to get itself. To stay in the program? Yeah. Yep. Well, not program, anything. Yep. Right? So I'm taking data from outside of it. Oh, right. And okay, then going, yeah. how would this look if I applied it to this paradigm? Yeah. Right? So we're not going to pay men to do men's behavior change programs, right? That's, that's never going to happen. For, and and I wouldn't um, encourage that either, right? I think it's a. Do you think it would work if it happened? Um, Maybe for a little bit, and then it would just not. People wouldn't probably buy in, would they? Yeah, I, w- I would say no. I think would yeah. be the safest thing because yep. it has to be an intrinsic journey. Yeah. And so, so I'm interested in intrinsic motivators. Everyone comes in with an extrinsic motor. I just call it on day one, and we we literally draw it up on the board between extrinsic and intrinsic motivators. I think what you're talking about now is so relevant to a lot of different things. I mean, I feel the same way about jobs and employment. Yeah. Um, there's a big discussion in the yeah. management theory literature around you know how do you get people to stay? Is it in, intrinsic or extrinsic rewards? And yeah. we sort of know in the field of meaning making and purpose and being on that journey, it's got to be extrinsic. Yeah. I mean, if you've got a candidate who comes in and says. Look, thanks for the opportunity to do uh, take on more um, responsibility for the organisation and drive this program. But really, what I want is more twenty grand more. Totally, um, that's probably not the right person. That yeah, you, yeah. That you want there? Yeah, yeah. And so, so our our goal is to move men towards an intrinsic motivator. Yeah, right. Yeah. To to become fundamentally to to use less aggressive, violent, and coercive behaviours towards women and children. And what's the journey that you take them on to 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 make them want that? It's it starts with a lot of of skills, strategies, and psychoeducation around um, emotional regulation, around emotional literacy. That's our start point. And the reason that's an effective start point is because the, there's, a, there's strong, strong correlations between level or positive correlations between, sorry, inverse. <laughs> God, now I'm tripping over my own feet. There's an inverse relationship between empathy and expressed violence, right? Which means that the more I can empathize, with somebody, the less likely I am to use aggression and violence. So that's my end game. But it's a very diff- one of the things with empathy is there's affective and cognitive empathy. So affect is affective empathy means that I'm sitting here, Mike, and I I can hypothesize about what you're thinking and what you're doing and what your motivations might be. Mm. And I'm trying to understand what life is like for Mike. Good luck. I'm a stone wall. <laughs> it's you might underestimate <laughs> my secret powers, Mike. Um, and then there's this affective empathy where. I'm trying to feel what you feel, right? And so, and Brene Brown's been really good at being able to popularize that in a way that that is accessible. Yeah. And then all you got to do is watch the some of the really quick, the snips of her amazing work on empathy and sympathy and that kind of stuff, right? So this is kind of what we're aiming for. But are you trying? Can can one teach empathy without question? 
One can teach resilience, one can teach empathy, one can teach emotional regulation. All these things are teachable skills. There might be a perception that people who who have committed family violence, men who have committed family violence, might lack empathy fundamentally. They they might lack empathy fundamentally because of, I mean this this is where this is where it's such a, a paradox because on one hand we're saying there's social structures in place that that and, and they use the term man box and we'll go well you know men are raised in a man box which inhibits their ability to experience empathy because it's not encouraged and it's not taught and all these kinds of well, things. Well, that's that, that's true. I mean, I so let's teach it right. Yes, if, if that's yes. our presupposition, yeah. then wouldn't teaching it. Be a logical way out of this. Well, I think um, there are there are places doing that. I think the Resilience Project actually does a, a non gender based version of that quite well. I agree. Until we get into male family violence, yeah, good point. Right. So, so you know enough about the um the, the therapeutic arm of the community sector mm. to know that that you don't want to be writing a mental health tender now without some kind of reference to to peers or lived experience. Yeah, true. Right. Same with family violence, right? When it comes to victim survivors. And the same with AOD when it comes to people who have identified as a past substance user or something like that, right? We, we need lived experience and we need peer workers. And that's across the board now if you're tender writing, except when it comes to men who have used family violence. Mm. And there's we, we have absolutely no appetite to have a conversation with these guys as to why do you think you were doing it and what do you yeah. think helped you stop doing it? Look, the, the best thing I've ever seen in like our experience at working at Task Force together was yeah. when uh, we had an all staff day. And what, what, what would you know? Those two all staff days we'd have each year, and you, we'd bring along a client or two yeah, yeah. to talk to the group about their life and their experiences. Yeah. There was one guy who was a recovered former uh, heroin user, yep. um, and another guy who I think was a former men's um, family violence perpetrator. Yep. And hearing the stories was just you just get it. Yeah. Um, not not. That it's okay in any way, but understanding the person and that journey and, and sort of how they were raised, yeah. it's just so. I mean, it starts to really make you understand that there is recovery, there is hope, there is possibility, yeah. but also in every damaged way that one person might harm another. Yeah, um, there's history as to there's so much history. There's the totally. burden of history as totally. to why that decision might have been made or yeah, yeah. that lack of decision might well, have been We're made. all a slave yeah. to our former selves and our former selves were raised by our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, right? So yeah. it's it's there, there's a lot of people involved in this. And so ultimately I'm responsible for my behaviour and yep. choices, right? Yep. Unless unless there's a cognitive impairment of some kind, of, of some kind mm-hmm. right? And then we can have a conversation around that. Yeah. But fundamentally it's on me. And so part of what I do is make that sound appealing. So you are big on personal responsibility. That's part. it, man. Yep. That's yep. my game. Yeah, that's my game. I'm a I'm a Nietzschean from way back. You know, it's I found existentialism through 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 the through Jim Morrison and the Doors and Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> when I was I was 15 and my brother had died. But, and you're still a rock star, so I'm still a rock star. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But no, my brother died when I was a teenager, and and sorry that, for your loss. That's that's I'm, I mean I'm, a, I'm I'm thank you, but I find that interesting as well when people say I'm sorry for your loss because as, as a Nietzschean, it's it's again the difference between. So Nietzsche would say, "Well, it, I don't want your sympathy because it's that's akin to pity. Your empathy's okay. Mm. Like it's, I, I understand that must have been difficult. So I, I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I, I, I know I'm critiquing your language. I, think I was going for empathy. Yeah, but the, but it's interesting though, isn't it? Straight away, there's yeah. a conflation to sympathy. I certainly don't pity people when I say things like yeah. that. Um, I, I guess, I guess, actually, you've raised a good point. 
this happened on, on another podcast episode yeah. and I didn't know what to say. Exactly. Um, so I guess that's just me expressing I'm, I'm wanting to show that I care. Yeah. I don't know, meeting you where you are. Yeah. But I don't have another expression for that. But isn't that, isn't that great though? Because what you've done is um, – what I've done is divert the conversation away from my feelings, which I'm good at. And <laughs> and what what you've done though is give us an in vivo example mm. of of society's preference for sympathy over empathy. Yeah, and you may not have met that affectively or emotionally, mm. but the language that you used, which is commonplace language, which is almost the exception. I'm sorry for your yeah experience. But yeah. If, if we analyse that against a lens of sympathy and empathy, that's sympathy. It is. Yeah, and, you're and right. that is the acceptable practice. Yeah. Because that's how afraid we are of getting close. It means to we don't actually experience. want to engage with those emotions. I don't want to touch it, man. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, another ring to it. Yeah. Fuck! I forgot what we're talking about. Now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Sorry, team. <laughs> if anyone's still with us, <laughs> mate, there are thousands on on the uh, on the airwaves right now as we speak. Where were we? Um, we were talking about. I mean, we're, we're talking about working with men. Yeah, and we're talking about the the, the challenges I have with the. With the, I don't know if party lines with, with the mainstream approach. Yeah, I guess right. Yeah, and so one of the challenges that that there is with my approach is that we need to keep the voices of women and children in in the room. Right, we, we were on personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. Yeah. So Thank mate, you. Mate, let's just go back to that briefly. Yeah. So I think there's a strong thread of that in your reels as well, which I quite yeah. like. Yeah, yeah. And I think the thing about a personal responsibility approach to not just the work that you do, but everything. Yeah means that we can hold ourselves more accountable, we can reflect more on our own actions, yeah. we can be responsible for thinking about our own behaviours and yeah. how, how we turn up every day in the world. Totally. And I think it's inherently a very positive approach to the world. And I think, I don't know if you're a religious person or not, I'm, I'm personally not. Yeah. Um, and when people talk to me about, you know, God and, you know, this and that and like don't you feel a huge lack of meaning in your life because, you know, what's the point of everything if there is yeah. no God? Well, yeah. my response to that is uh, wouldn't you rather be responsible for your own faith than outsource it? Yeah. You know? To some degree, like, and the, but the, I mean, I, I understand Nietzsche's challenge and prediction, which was that if we kill God, which we did, right, through through our scientific in, endeavours fundamentally, yep. right, that, that the absence of God would would do two things. It would drive people to nihilism. Or it would drive people to false idols and ideologies. And so you would say that our kind of, for loss of a better term, extreme left, extreme right uh, political paradigms is exactly as Nietzsche predicted. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Right? And then in between, there's just nihilism masters consumerism. Yeah. Or consumerism masters nihilism, whichever way you want to engineer that. Yeah. So I understand the critique yeah. of well, what happens if you want to live a secular life. For me as an existentialist or someone who has is informed by existential philosophy, everything I do points towards my sense of meaning. And when it when I behave in a way that's in contrast to my meaning, I should by rights feel cognitive dissonance mm. that would be described as anxiety or angst in the existential realm, right? Yeah, because you departed from your values or virtues. Totally. Yeah. So, so it does two things for me. One is it, is it assists me with experiencing anxiety as information that either something's very important or I might be off track and I need to realign, yep. right, or, or interrogate my meaning structure. Yeah. So, so it helps me reinterpret anxiety in a way that is a barometer to my, to my authenticity or a compass to my authenticity, yep. which is more helpful than pathologizing it. Yeah. And it also then affords me, I think, the challenge of saying, well, my meaning is visible in my behavior. 
So how am I behaving? <laughs> and and I love that challenge. And I, I love the fact that it's it's mine to create. That to live a life of meaning is on me. So yeah. wow, like this is this better count. Are you into stoicism? Yeah. I mean, I think what you're talking about is deeply resonant with sort of stoic themes yeah. of, you know, that idea that we, we hold our own um our own fate in our own hands, so to speak. Uh, obviously, the gods play a role too, the yeah. notional old gods. Yeah. But very much, you know, life is about that journey to um, work on and cultivate a better character. Yeah. But also to, to strive to to live a good life or, totally. as, or as good a life as possible yeah. within that sort of remit. How do, how do you – what's your experience, though, when you meet people that are of faith and that you see that little light in their eye. What's your experience when you when you witness that as somebody who lives a secular like life? Like a light of inspiration? Or yeah, like, or just or, or faith, full stop. Like when you see someone who's who's not phoning it in, who yeah. actually is a believer. Yeah, look, I think good for them, whatever yeah. works. You know? I, I, I see the – when I was a young person, I was very cynical, right? Yeah. Like most young – I'm in, incredibly creative, right? And when creative people are young, they're cynical about just about everything, right? Yeah. Which is what makes the world interesting. That's why you're into punk rock and, you know. Punk like rock and cool whatever clothes, else is going around. Hats and, you know. All of it, right? You're just pushing. Skateboarding. Whatever, whatever there is, you'll push it, right? Yep. And it's still happening today, but it just happens, you know, it's it's, it's a fashion. Um, and so I was very cynical about people that that had that kind of faith. And, and now that I'm older and I realize the utility in a sound sense of meaning, yep. I'm, I'm – at times in awe of it, I'm like, that's so cool. That well, let me let me put much. this to you. So, so I agree with you that I too have always been in awe of people with um, meaning making systems. Yeah, which I think religion is. It's a meaning making system. Yep. So, but God doesn't have to be involved in a good meaning making system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I think for me, this Getting is into Sam Harris territory. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Love Sam Harris. Ooh. Uh, but yeah, so for me recently, you know, discovering Stoic literature and practice, yeah. has, it's a total meaning-making system without a reliance on an outside character known yeah. as God. Yeah, so, totally. And, it, and existentialism did the same thing yeah. to me. Yeah, so it sort of takes God out of the picture a bit. It acknowledges that, you know, nothing is certain and we live in very uncertain times, yeah. but the cause of that is not what God wants to happen or not happen or, yeah. or fate. It's really just, um, you know, and it measures a lot with the existentialism. It's the absurdity and the randomness of life totally so without question and i think that's where stoicism is quite interesting as an antidote to a lot of this tension that we face not just as males but as people in a very challenged society yeah is you want to know and be able to focus on the things that are in your control yep. to, to better your character and to lead a meaningful better life totally and, and so what i love to circle back to personal responsibility yeah. and then and sprinkle a bit of stoicism and existentialism mm. on top of it what i love about having these Having these um, frameworks or frameworks or yeah. lenses of, yeah. of like the way I see the world or the way you see the world is that it is universal. It's very hard to play a, a contemporary intersectional sociological lens. It's very hard to play that card when we're talking about stoicism or existentialism. Yeah. Because these things have survived everything. Right. Just listen to people who are good at stoicism or yeah. well researched in it or authors and how they speak. It's simple. Everything makes sense. Yeah. Uh, it's not overly complicated. But also it maps directly on, right, yeah. to Eastern philosophy. Yeah, So exactly. it's not There's as a if, direct linkage. Yeah, yeah, so you can't make the sort of, oh, well, you would say that as a white male. Yeah. It's like you can map this onto any old philosophy, man. Actually, These are humanistic yeah. principles. These are, are not white guy principles. And they that's are. what I love about it is that it's very hard to, to 
argue it with a contemporary lens of, well, of course you'd say that coming from that demographic being that shape Look, and it's, being it's that It's a bullshit argument. Um, I think, you know, some of the leading uh, Stoics of the day were very into women's rights and equality yeah. uh, way before that was a thing. Um, so, you know, it, it's certainly not something um, just for white men. In fact, the one of the leading uh, writers on Stoicism, uh, I believe is Bridget Delaney, who was on my podcast recently, yeah, yeah. Um, and how to how to live, uh, I can't remember the name of the book, but it's, it's the best book on Stoicism there is. Um, and she has spent, you know, a lot of time living Stoic principles yeah. and, you know, talks about the tremendous benefit it's had for her and her communities. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's that, there's this, that profound, um, I don't know if irony is the right word, right? Counterintuitive, the counterintuitive payoff for adopting extreme responsibility. It's the most liberating thing. Yeah, I think it is. And I think there there are areas where stoicism falls short. And I, and I think, you know, um, trauma in particular, actually yeah. interesting yeah, really, yeah, your no, space and, you know, um, growing up in difficult environments mm. and learned behaviours that, that might not be. It doesn't. Have you finished that statement before I jump on top of you? Go ahead. Yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah. Because I sit with clients, right, and, you know, I've worked with people that have had some pretty horrific experiences yep. and I've got my own tales, right? And, yep. and I'm a, come from a long line of trauma. And at the end of the day, right, we can witness that, acknowledge it and understand how that influences your behavior and influences it in a way that, that is, is pre-lingual, right? It's, it's, we're talking about the bedrock of, of the neurophysiology that is you. Yeah. And that's a difficult thing to turn around. Mm. However, who else's responsibility is it? True. Like we can blame your dad, right? Yeah. But cool. Like how much mileage do you think you're going to get out of blaming the fact that dad was an asshole? Like yeah. at some point in time, yep. your dad's going to be dead for about 15 years, right? Yeah. And you're still sitting there going, my dad was such a prick and that's why I haven't got my shit together. That's why I beat my wife because my dad beat me. Yeah. Like that. that's that's it? That's what you're going to bring? Yeah. So at the end of the day, like I'm a trauma-informed therapist and I'm very passionate about organizations like Task Force making more of an effort to be trauma-informed services because yep. I think that's a, that's a more difficult thing to achieve than, mm. than we would like to think yep. because it's, it's where PR marketing and flashy foyers meets trauma-informed practice and, and they don't always complement each other, right? So it's a difficult thing to achieve and I'm very passionate about it. And at the end of the day, man, when I'm sitting with you, it's still on you. You got to do the work, regardless of your story. It's still yep. on you. Yep, well, that's a really interesting message because I, I guess the pushback I've always had against some of this radical yeah. personal responsibility has been like, yes, but we should also consider what people have been through. Yeah, um, we should consider it. But I, I think what I'm hearing from you is we should consider it, but then put it to the side. It's still that person's responsibility to because well, let, let's say there's considering it right. Yeah, using it as a framework for understanding why a person might yep. behave the way yep. they behave. Yeah. And then there's using it, then there's employing it in a manner that strips the person of agency. Now, I'm never interested in that. I'm never interested in saying, Mike, I only expect out of, out of from zero to 10 as far as your ability to regulate your emotions, I expect two out of you, I expect seven out of Carl, and I expect a four out of Sue, all based on your childhood experiences. They're my expectations and, and don't try any harder than that. So that's the idea that we treat everyone differently based on their own 
sort of trajectory. That that just does make sense. And like in, in a society where we want to have order and people to be, you know, adhering to yeah. uh, basic universal standards, we, we just can't have. Like, well, what, what's look at look at what's happened to people's ability to regulate their emotions. Yep. Since we basically said it's not your fault to reg- it's not your responsibility to regulate your own emotions. You should yeah. blame the institutions yeah. that, that 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 have exposed you to this triggering stimulus. Yep. You know, it's it's not going well. And if you look at there's a, there's a a sick thing happening between the relationship between mental health literacy and escalating mental health concerns. Mm. So there's, there's we're missing we're, we're talking about it, which is great, but are we having the right conversation? I think before you cited the resilience project, and these are better conversations to have. Yeah. But no one really wants to talk about resilience or personal responsibility. No, it's look, hard. look, and I think there is also a broader conversation to be had around what. A, what does solution making look like yeah. in mental health? Yes. Um, you know, is it does stoicism have a greater role to play in helping people to understand themselves, who they are, and take responsibility yeah. for their problems? Or do we just sort of follow the medical model even further and further? You yeah. know, try and medicate all our How pains far do you want to take this? Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, maybe we'll just leave that, park that idea there. Yeah. Um, for the moment, one thing I have been watching a lot on YouTube, and I wonder whether you've seen, is this thing called Soft White Underbelly. Have you ever watched that? Is a guy Can called? Can you talk me through it? Because yeah. it sounds familiar. It's a guy called Mark Later, who's a photographer. Yeah, um, he's been on a couple oh, of it's the interviews. Interviews. Yes, so and they bleep out the f words. Yeah. Oh, it frustrates me, Mark. Yeah, not like this podcast. Um, and you know, <laughs> I've behaved myself today. <laughs> well, you know, it's all relative. <laughs> so in these little vignettes that he does, they're black and white, and this is a guy who spends a lot of time in a small studio on Skid Row. Yeah. And he just grabs people who are willing to have a chat. They come in, they sit yeah. down, and they just he just asks them the same sorts of questions, like, "Tell me." About your life, what was your family life like? How yeah. did you grow up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what are you What are you doing now? Um, do you have? Are you into drugs at the moment? What's going on? And it, it is fascinating. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And I just I thought of you when I was watching this, just because I wondered whether you saw sort of similar patterns in a lot of the people that you work with, because it it sort of seems to me like a lot of the people that this guy is interviewing, it's always the same sort of story. Yeah, there's childhood um, trauma and you know, um, verbal, physical or sexual abuse. Yeah. Um, there's no one to talk to. There's a destabilised home life. There's yeah. often a lot of movement. Um, and then there's always this um, something that, that used to be reserved for for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders people, which was state intervention in a manner that, that, that destroyed families. Yeah. And then that's – and this is nothing to take away from our First Nations people's experiences, right, yeah. of colonisation and the yeah. horror of that. But – you know, you spend enough time in the community sector and you're starting to work with people who for three generations have had state intrusion into their families, yeah. for better or worse, right? Yeah. Like I'm not saying foster homes and whatnot. Yeah. Most people come in with the intent to make things better, Yeah. right? And there would be people that from the stolen generation who oversaw that who would argue that point, right? Yeah. It's only on reflection we realise what a horror it was. Yep. And the same thing unfolds today. Yeah. It's profound. And so, yes, all the childhood trauma and that, I think that's an important piece that we – that we carry is that there's also the state itself has, plays a role, big role in in this systemic and systematic traumatization. It's so often that what will happen is, and it's not just the state; it's also you know the families. There's some dirty uncle who comes over, and there's a molestation yeah. of some kind. There's some horrible stuff that goes on, but also a lot of it is the state placing people in really nasty 
homes where yeah. obviously the people who are signing up to be foster parents for whatever reason they have their own agendas. And, horror, right? It's yeah, a horror show. It's just, and it seems like with, with these people, I guess the point that I'm getting to is that these people start at such a disadvantage in oh, life. It's profound, right? And it's like, how do you? I mean. My conception of what it means to have personal responsibility and a lot of the stoic things that I work with, yeah. I almost think it's not a fair conversation to have when it relates to people who've been through that much. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I agree. And I think there's a plural truth. Yeah. Which is, well, but who else? If it's not on you, then who's it on? Yeah, yeah, fair. Um, fair. The, the, as, as a therapist, that, they, they, they probably wouldn't be paradigms I would pursue when I'm working with someone who's experienced that much trauma. Yep. Right? Because I don't think it's therapeutic to be like, it's on you, it's on you. But if I was working with you, right, and you were behaving in a way that was causing yourself and people around you harm, I'd be pretty much, it's on you, it's on you, right? Yeah. I, I, I'm not that blatant, but yeah. I'd use my psychotherapy trickery and and we'd be having those conversations. So so I agree. And and who else is it on? Like, it's who else can turn this around if you don't get buy-in from the individual? Um, but to, to circle then right back to our sociological paradigms and how they intrude in a way that's not helpful when it comes to assessing individuals or explaining the experience of individuals, understanding the experience of individuals. Do you look at that? Is it soft white underbelly? Is that what it's yeah, called? Soft yeah, soft white underbelly. I watched one with a, a guy who I think was a biker. Well, I can't remember, right? Yeah. But what I do know was he was a white middle-aged male. So according to most sociological paradigms, he's a privileged human. And my position on privilege now, given how much trauma I've worked with, is that I've got no problem with an intersectional lens, but for the fact that just generalized trauma across all demographics in society isn't at the top of the hierarchy, like it doesn't matter really, right? There's Yes, there's color and creed and race and gender and all these kinds of things. But if you had two parents that loved you, and you lived in a relatively calm neighbourhood. Mm. That's the privilege, yeah. Right, and then the colour of your skin and everything else. For me, and of course you'd say that as a white man would be the response, right? But that's those things are inconsequential compared to those early attachment relationships. Yeah, I agree. So you can to stable home, stable upbringing, yeah, yeah. and I think there might be when we talk about correlation and causation. I would say that maybe there's a lot more white men that get that. Than other groups, maybe, and that's you know, <laughs> it's in our interest to get yeah, it right. <laughs> but, but like you know, maybe that's why there's that kind of like growing up in it with strong attachments, a healthy, safe, you know, relatively happy, problem-free <laughs> home. Yeah, yeah, might be strongly correlated with being a white man, and you know, maybe that's where some of the privilege assertions come from. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Because I grew up with a lot of the a lot of the trauma and adverse childhood experiences that that my client group do. If I'm working in the community space, yeah. right? If we're talking justice, criminal justice. Yeah. The difference being, I had a secure attachment. Yeah. My parents loved me. Yeah. Right, and they were really good providers and people. Yeah. We had, we had trauma in the family, and you know, some PTSD, and oh, it's not the place to go into it. But yeah, that's what got me over the line. Yep. So that's the privilege, right? In my opinion. Yeah. Do you think privilege is a useful place um, for a conversation, like generally in, in how we I think, deal I think with problems? I think it's, a, again, right, it's a low resolution lens for, for an incredibly complex phenomena, which is people. Yeah. And so anytime we try and simplify the human experience by, put it this way, if you think you can explain it with one or two statements, you are so ignorant to the to the complexity of the phenomena that that, that the 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 belief that you can explain it in a in a tweet 
<laughs> in and of itself says you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. That, that's my experience of, of trying to explain humans yep. based on working with humans. I had a really interesting um, interaction. You know, we were talking before about like um, how if you're as a white guy referencing stoic principles, you could just be, oh, that's just white guy garbage. <laughs> you, you know, it's typical white guy shit. Yeah, yeah. Privilege. Um, so it was a conversation online um, that turned a little bit nasty where somebody was sort of saying in the context of um, – of First Nations advocacy that the only way to get outcomes is just to get really angry. Yeah. So I, I, I read it and I thought, what? Like, that's just bizarre. I mean, yeah, get, yeah. getting angry is not a great way to achieve anything in anything, my, in my yeah, point yeah. of view. So I, I sort of – I shouldn't have commented, but I, I put my two cents in. It was probably late and I was bored and just looking for something to do and just doom scrolling. <laughs> but um, put my two cents in saying, look, you know um, – the Stoics would tell us that acting on anger is not a great idea, and, and here might be a useful reflection from Marcus that you know you could consider yeah. um, in, in sort of shaping more pragmatic response. The response I got back was, "That's some typical white guy garbage." <laughs> how how obvious that you said that, and you know, like it's it's offensive on a few levels. It's offensive number one because I'm not a particularly white guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I'm actually not a white guy. I look like a white guy. Um, second of all, as we were saying, you know, the Stoics had some pretty intelligent stuff to say and a yeah, lot of yeah. them were pretty pro-equality back in the day. And, and, um, and as I've said, it maps onto a lot of Eastern yeah. and and if you look at Indigenous philosophy around the world as well, and I don't, I don't claim to be an aficionado, yeah. an aficionado on this stuff. No, it does. I mean, it's, These are humanistic philosophies. These aren't isolated to one group. If you wanted to map what um, Stoicism would say in response to a problem, uh, any problem, it'd probably be remarkably similar to what Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, totally. um, and also um, you know some of the monotheistic traditions would also say about it what would be a good solution. It's totally, man. And there's, there's um, plenty of Really interesting Native American stuff too about about noticing and watching feelings and being mindful of what yeah. you pay attention to. And- I mean, I don't know if you know this, but um, mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction and a lot of these uh, CBT and therapies came from Stoic principles totally. and philosophy. Yep. And it's, it's, you can map that across Buddhism. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's ridiculous to take these principles that – because humanity has been working on these things, right? Yeah. And then so to, to – Boil them down to a middle-aged white guy and then dismiss them. Mm. It's like this is when we say things like standing on the shoulders of giants. This is what we're talking about. Like this is the the absolute collective wisdom of humankind. Yeah. When we talk, because you can map them across every culture. Every mm. culture's got their own version of it, but they're trying to say the same thing. You know. Yeah. And it's to dismiss that as being as being an an, an um a symbol of white patriarchy is. It's so profoundly short-sighted and dangerous, I think, because it's like this is your liberation, mate. Absolutely. And what what I you know, it's when it comes to things now, like um, what does reconciliation look like? And th- th- I'm so much more comfortable with like I just don't know. Yeah. There's smarter people than I. Well, we have to. We have to be. Yeah. Um, I think that what you said, you've actually mentioned it a few times throughout this conversation, but the admission that. Um, as people, not as just random middle-aged white dudes, but as people um, who are informed and want to have a contribution to any sort of solution, yeah. it's okay to sit with not knowing. I and, just don't know. Yeah, and to, to, to say that you don't know and to sit in that space of uncertainty and welcome the opinions of others who know more than you. Yeah. Um, and just Without question. to shut the F up and uh, really absorb and contribute when you've got something useful to say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And when I do family violence trainings um, within task force, and we sort of float around, and it's interesting because because you know people would identify task force as an AD service, yet there's like 
Alfred Hospital, for example, love working with us in our family violence training. There's something about the way we deliver it they find really accessible. Yep. And it's it's that AOD mental health crossover, right? And it's very pragmatic how we try and train people to work with men who are using violence. And what's so interesting about that is that the the techniques are universal, right? And but but we 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 pitch it as working with men who use violence because that's our area of expertise. Not because we don't believe these would work with a woman using violence in a same sex relationship, right? But what I do intentionally is caveat my expertise. And then I advise people, I would advise you to try and use these techniques with any client group you're working with. However, <clears throat> let's keep in mind that I'll speak from my area of expertise and that's it. And to to sort of go back to your point, it's like I'm so comfortable now in that space. Yeah of saying either I don't know or that's outside my area of expertise or... Well, that, this is another great area of debate that actually my mate Sam Harris has covered recently is that sort of like, you know, this whole notion of recent times that anyone can be an expert on anything. Oh, mate. Um, like nuts. these kind of keyboard warrior experts who, you know, have these great insights on um, how we should um, get to a better society <laughs> or, you know, what we should do about the voice and whatnot. Nuts, Just like coming, coming from absolutely no nuts. area of expertise and how... You know, we really rely too much on medical experts and health experts to get health information. Yeah. It's just like, what kind of a conversation are we having here? It is insane. And that's what I mean, like doing some, um, before when I was talking about going back to uni recently to do a bit of psych stuff. Yeah. Because I was like, oh, do I want to do the psych thing? And, you know, as a psychotherapist, it's like sometimes you feel you're missing some arsenal. Yeah. If you if you don't have some cycle. Anyway, so I went back in and and did a bit of that. And it's it's not for me because it's yeah. too scientific and my brain doesn't work that way. Like yeah. I'm, I'm really high in openness. I find it very difficult to concentrate on one thing. Like yeah. this conversation, right? We're bouncing all over the joint, right? Oh mate, and, it's and gonna this- be com- completely a non-listable episode. <laughs> well, you'll have to come back. <laughs> but this is my jam, right? This yeah, is how I, I see like the world. Too. I just like to follow the thread. Me too. This is my preferred mode. Yeah. yeah. And so and so, so psych for me doesn't work that way. Yeah. But what it did, it taught me that that's 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 science's jam. Yeah. And so to turn around and think that you can undermine research that simply because it doesn't agree with your gut feeling or your ideology, it's it's just so profoundly ignorant. The rigor these cats go through, man, to apply the scientific method to to whatever it is they're investigating, right? Whether it be the environment, whether it be human behavior. Mm. It's it's so beyond most people to comprehend. Yeah. And that's before we even talk statistical analysis. Yeah. And to sit there from your armchair with your with your smartphone thinking that you know better because it was hot yesterday and it's cold tomorrow and that's your evidence for climate change. <laughs> or my cousin got the vaccine and grew a third nose or some shit. Like just you know what I mean? This 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 belief that that this availability heuristic whereby I have an anecdotal Story now my favorite, undermines all that science. My favorite is um, do your own research. <laughs> yeah, I've done my I've done research. My own research. My favorite one. Yeah, like um, I've done my own research. I went on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, yeah. and I read some opinions of people that I follow, yep. and they are right. Yeah, totally. And there was an hour and a half YouTube lecture, which I watched a five minute condensed version <laughs> yeah. of somebody yeah. making comments on. <laughs> no, even better, I saw a TikTok excerpt of the YouTube it's short. Nuts. Yeah, and, and then uh, people are experts. That's crazy. Yeah, so it's profound. We need to, there is an informational problem that we have that I think comes with the information abundant and dense world that we're now in yeah, as well. Yeah. Like you talked about contrast before, that's a good analogy, but I think about it almost like um there's just there's too much of everything. Yeah. And like to find quality information and to understand there's almost a meta um piece of study around how to how to know things well. Like, yes. like how much can we know and yeah. how well can we know things and how yeah. how should we try and know things? Well, if, if you think of 
sort of not just the subtext, but that's been a lot of what we're talking about. Yeah. Is being comfortable saying, I don't know. Yeah. And there's, that's so empowering. Well, I think social media and uh, the the online sphere has made it very unfashionable to not have an opinion on everything. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what we're fighting against here a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm flipping that, Mike. Let's kick back. Let's flip it. I don't know is, is my answer. <laughs> our, f- our final point of this episode is going to be both of us like admitting that we don't know. <laughs> we I don't, just don't I, know. I don't have any answers for you. I don't know why you are listening to this episode. I, I don't know. I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> I don't know why I came along. Mike. Um. <laughs> How can people connect with you and learn more about your work too? Um, well, on my website, I guess, which is T-O-N-Y-J-O-H-A-N-N. We'll pop it in the show notes for spelling. in the show notes for spelling. Purposes. If you want to catch me during the day and, I guess, learn more about what we do at Task Force and how we handle family violence there, then you just go to Task Force and look at the U-Turn program. We sort of didn't really touch on that much. That's another conversation in and of itself, right? I mean, you have to come back for a part two where we actually have a coherent structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we got there. We we dabbled in in working with men and 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 how it is at Task Force that we do it slightly differently. Yeah. Um. And there's evidence to support that too, which is helpful. Um. So yeah, there's, look, there's if you want to know what we do in family violence, that's on Task Force. Um. Is the best way to find it. Uh. And then Facebook and Instagram, if you want to see some of these reels that we. If you want to see the shitty options real, that's oh, what you'll you want. So you want to uh, find Tony Johansson on Facebook, and uh, where can people go and see Nick Barker on the reptiles? <laughs> in Sydney last week, and it was actually really good fun. So you back playing a fair bit? Oh, we we played in Sydney last week. Sydney last week was a show that we'd booked. Are you a reptile? You're not Nick Barker. No, I'm not Nick Barker. I'm not Nick Barker. I've known Nick for. I started playing in Nick's bands. When I was 19, I'm now 46. So that's how long Nick and I have been playing together. Must have been a fairly influential person to have all these reptiles around him full time. Yeah, totally. Yep. So, the, so the reptiles, all of them are still alive and well. I use that well loosely. <laughs> they're, they're still kicking. Most of them are still playing, right? Yeah. Um, but their bass player lives in the UK. And so whenever they get together, because I've been playing with Nick forever, it's just a logical fit for me to come in and play bass. So it's really quite a privilege because I get to sit in – they're all – I think on average about sort of 11 to 15 years older than me. So I remember the Nick and Barker and the Reptiles thing. I remember watching on my Hey Hey at Saturday and all that kind of stuff, right? And now you play with your a band you love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's really interesting to to be both not necessarily a fan but a voyeur, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it's so yeah. for me it's really nostalgic and then yeah. I watch the fans interact with the band yet I'm on stage at the same time. Yeah. It's quite an interesting phenomenon to be to be a part of and so we 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 sort of we're tacked on to that heritage rock act. So we play with James Rain and Look, John Stevens and all these guys. It's great. I've always found you quite reptilian. I'm glad you've uh, <laughs> come out and admitted your your identity. Totally. Well, the irony being, right, that I help men control that reptilian part of their brain. So. <laughs> <laughs> it all ends in the same place. Mate, great being with you. Yeah, uh, it was good fun. Mike. Thanks for coming in and drop in again and let's have a coherent chat. I, I can't promise the <laughs> latter, but I will try. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.